The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to Holy Smoke, the Spectator's religion podcast. I'm Damien Thompson. Did you know that in the last year, more Christians have been killed for their faith in Nigeria than anywhere else in the world combined? In 2021, at least 6,000 Christians died for their faith, and 80% of those were Nigerians. Their murderers were, and you may not be too shocked to learn this, almost to a man, Islamists. But that said, this being Nigeria, the situation is chaotic as well as murderous. Three different groups are implicated. The notorious Boko Haram, the Islamic State in West African province, that's a sort of offshoot of ISIS, and Fulani militants, often described in the media as herders, which they are, but these days they seem to do as much killing of Christians for ethnic and economic reasons, as well as ideology, as they do herding. To quote the Christian charity Open Doors, killing Christian men is a key strategy for all three groups because it destroys livelihoods, with men tending to be the family's main breadwinner, and depopulates Christian communities. And on top of that, there's violence perpetrated by armed bandits, mostly from Muslim backgrounds. Their speciality is kidnapping. The violence employed by the Fulani herdsmen in particular is so grotesque that I won't describe it in detail, but if I tell you that their targets include pregnant women and very specifically their unborn children, that will give you some idea of the apocalyptic horror involved. My guest today is a remarkable man, Pastor Ayo Adedoyen, based at Jesus House in London, who's also Chief Executive Officer of an international development, human rights and social justice charity, PSJ UK, which tries to mobilise Africans in the UK into a cohesive voice to try and do something about what's going on. A situation that he compares to the blood-soaked slaughter in the streets of Ukraine. But for years it hasn't attracted anything like the publicity that it deserves. And the reason for that is that the international media, and also international politicians, don't seem particularly interested in the religious dimension of this conflict. The British Foreign Office hasn't really responded to repeated calls to make it a higher priority. The Trump administration did, but that's now been reversed by an administration led by devout Catholic Joe Biden. Earlier I spoke to Pastor Io, and I think we all need to listen very carefully to what he had to say. Ayo, it's hard not to feel a little bit sort of helpless, to feel some despair about the situation in Nigeria, which has been going on for so long, this endless Islamist assault on Christian Nigerians by various groups, by the hardline Islamist Boko Haram, and in recent years by these Fulani herdsmen, who are an ethnic group, but also, it appears, extremely hardline Islamists. I've been to a conference I remember a few years ago at which Baroness Cox spelt out and showed photographs of the slaughter and the room 
was profoundly shocked, and these were people who know all about violence against religious minorities. But it does seem that this is a never-ending conflict and one that the world either doesn't pay very much attention to or ignores the religious dimension of. What do you think? You're absolutely right, Damien. And um, it has gone on for so long and threatens to carry on unless you, I, and others wake up to this. It really is a multi-headed, multifaceted crisis in Nigeria, which is certainly affecting various different communities, but there is definitely an element of it that is particularly targeted at Christian communities, particularly in the middle belt of Nigeria. Explain this to me. Recently, we've heard a lot about atrocities in the middle belt of Nigeria by these Fulani herdsmen. Now, how did a group of ethnic Muslim herdsmen become so radicalised, I suppose to put it politely, so utterly homicidal in their desire to impose their version of Sharia, basically Islamic terror, on the farmers with whom they've had an ancient rivalry? But how did this conflict turn so viciously religious. The Fulanese have been a part of Nigeria for um, quite a while, not as long as the other tribes that have been settled in Nigeria. However, for the vast majority of that time, although there are communal conflicts sometimes between herders and farmers, people have lived and gotten along peacefully. So something has changed. My strong suspicion is that these Fulani herders have been infiltrated by others with an agenda, an evil agenda, basically. And what's happening is that the various dynamics in Nigeria in terms of economic dynamics, social dynamics, has meant that this group of people who have now become militants, so probably part-time herders, part-time militants, or they've gone fully militant, have suddenly realized that this evil agenda is ticking two boxes. On the one hand, it's a much quicker route to economic wealth. I think it was the New York Times that ran an article that said that kidnapping has become the, the most profitable booming industry in Nigeria. But on the second hand, it also ticks the, the agenda item of bringing forth a certain type of ideological state which they are quite happy to subscribe to. That's the reason why you're seeing multifaceted evil hitting one nation from a lot of different angles. We may choose to see it as several different things. Oh, in the Northeast, that is the insurgencies and the radical jihadist extremists. But the guys in the middle belt who are running amok and, you know, raising communities to the ground, killing people and etc. We may choose to see that as something else. Truth of the matter is they're all very much interlinked and they're all leading to innocent people being killed on a regular basis and the potential of the nation being wasted away. So to give people an idea of just how potentially explosive Nigeria is, it's a country of 200 million people, more than half, 52% of whom are Muslim and 48% of whom are Christians. Now, the two communities got along reasonably well for a very long time, as often the case. Then, 
Islamism arrived in various forms, obviously taking root in the north of the country. Mm. Quite a few provinces in the north of the country are run, according to Sharia. And I wonder if you give me some idea of the relationship between the Sharia-run Muslim states, which are very strict, in northern Nigeria, Boko Haram, which is the sort of jihadist group that people said was worse than Al-Qaeda, and then these out-of-control, semi-Islamist, semi-murderous, thieving herdsmen in the middle. Yeah, the Nigerian constitution says that Nigeria is a secular state. Nevertheless, you have this contradiction of an Islamic penal code in 12 states in the nation. So right there is a a recipe for for a lot of uh, challenges. But in these 12 states, the Christians are the minority, and they certainly are being, in a lot of instances, persecuted. In a lot of other instances, they're just being denied their freedom within this same constitutional Nigeria. But whereas that part of what's going on is well-defined, and the activities of Boko Haram or Islamic State now, Islamic State, the West African province, is well-defined, the folks who are running around in the Middle Belt do not necessarily have an umbrella group or a named leader. But when you look at the nature of the attacks that are going on, you realize that these are systematic, these are coordinated, these are planned attacks, and there is lots of evidence coming out that there are relationships between those guys who are carrying out those activities in the Middle Belt with the folks up in the northeast, stretching across to the northwest now. So there are different facets of instability, insurgencies, killings, maimings, bombings. I mean, in the last few days alone, one state has had an attack on the airport, a train line being bombed, roads blocked and people being kidnapped on the roads. All of that happening in Kaduna State alone. This should be a national emergency anywhere in the world. And it's kind of just something that's happening in the backstream. And we're really keen for the world to know about this, the world to advocate about this. It's as much an evil as what's going on in the blood-based towns and cities of Ukraine. It's as bad or potentially as bad as that. And if we have an opportunity to knit this in the bud right now, it's something I think we really, as a global family, should be doing. Could you just tell me, is there Christian violence against Muslims as well? There is. And I know a lot of the um, official narratives would look at the Middle Belt and say things like, oh, it's intercommunal violence, the Christians are attacking the Muslims as well as the Muslim herders attacking the Christian farmers. But the truth of the matter is, <laughs> there's a massive disproportionality between them. And the reason why you are having some reprisal attacks is because particularly the youth in these communities are thinking to themselves, well, we're going to be killed anyway if we don't do anything, which is what the church is advocating. We're Christians, we don't do violence, an element of turn the other cheek. But well, the young people are saying, well, if that's your way, 
then we don't even want to have anything to do with the church because in any event, these guys are going to kill us. So we're going to find a way to defend ourselves. We're going to find a way to defend our community. Now, you'll have to realize, Damien, all of this is happening because of a failure of government. It's the responsibility of the government of the day to protect its people. <laughs> they are the ones who are meant to come up with a plan, either something that they can resource internally or seek help from the multilaterals, the regional neighbors or the international community to address this and keep the people safe. Well, they're not managing to do that, both in the ungoverned spaces as well as the governed spaces. And that's why you have what is sometimes referred to as these reprisal attacks. But like I say, there is no proportionality between the attacks. But either way, people are being killed either side. In the northwest of Nigeria, you're having Muslim on Muslim attacks. You're having ethnic killings. There's so many different dimensions to what's going on. But it's so important not to ignore or not to deny that mixed into that cocktail are some targeted attacks on Christian communities for, for very extremist jihadist reasons. Vehicles being stopped in the middle of roads, Christians being separated from the Muslims, the Muslims free to go, but the Christians bundled away. The list goes on and on, but the whole country is just a mangled mess of insecurity. I think one reason the world is not aware of the very important religious dimension to this slaughter is that, to start with, it's often not mentioned in the media. I mean, I just called up an article from Al Jazeera which says, dozens killed in barbaric, senseless violence in Nigeria, farmers being killed by herders. And the article identifies the two groups and it mentions that the herders are Muslims and the farmers are Christians, but that's it. It then seeks to locate the cause of the tension in other factors. And not only is this something you come across in the media, but I remember talking to David Alton, Lord Alton of Liverpool, a great hero of mine, and I'm sure of yours as well. He expressed intense frustration of the way this was about four, five years ago when, when DFID was still around. He expressed intense frustration that the Foreign Office and, at the time, the Department for International Development simply refused to look at these conflicts through the prism of religious ideological conflict. And I'm not sure whether that's because they're not comfortable with religion as a subject or because they're worried about offending the worldwide Islamic community by drawing attention to the Islamist agenda of much of these people committing the slaughter. There is definitely a reticence, I find, both from the Foreign Office and also from the State Department in the US to call this out for what it is, or certainly to identify this element of it. I would like to believe that that's the reason why the Bishop of Truro report recommended religious literacy in all of our posts across the FCDO. I'm not 100% sure that we are any more religiously literate today than when that report was first issued. And you're absolutely right to point out that the media portrayal is not helping it either. And all of that allows this to carry on being something that is almost under the radar. 
If you quantify the cumulative impact of the tragedy going on in Nigeria today, you will be shocked what it pairs up with in terms of other global tragedies and nobody building a proper policy around how to address it, both on the ground in Nigeria, which is really where the issue should be resolved from at root. But then as a global family, the international community does have a massive role to play in helping to resolve this as well. And I dare say the Nigerian diaspora ought to wake up and play its own part. And, and that's part of what I and uh, the organization that I lead, PSJ UK, are seeking to start doing, finding peaceful resolutions to, to these issues. It, it's really amazing that here we are in a time of our lives and history where the UK and Nigeria in this post-Brexit world really ought to be doing much better, much larger amounts of trades together. We're looking to find alternative sources of gas. Nigeria is flaring gas away. There's so much trade we can do in so many other industries and sectors, including the arts and entertainment. And yet, we don't have a foreign policy from the UK that is going to provide a lot of security. Yes, the UK has recently recommitted itself to the Defence Partnership, which Theresa May signed in 2018. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves, not a lot of difference has happened in the three years since it was originally signed. And I haven't seen anything majorly radical in the recommitment to it, which give me hope that the next three years is going to be any different from the last three. I'm just wondering what that approach might look like, because, you know, you can't really negotiate with Islamists, with jihadists. You can just defeat them. And surely that has to happen before there's any possibility of renewed peaceful cooperation between antagonistic Christians and Muslims. Yeah, well, I mean, for, for, for starters, if you take the middle belt of Nigeria... The rule of law is not even working. When I look at the National Bureau of Statistics website, I can't see the data of people who have been arrested, prosecuted. And, and so there's absolutely not a lot of justice going on. Attacks happen. Police or the army are never there to deal with it. We keep hearing stories of the army barracks was nearby. They called for help and no one came police come the day after to take away the bodies. So for starters, we know the communities or the regions that are vulnerable. What about coming up with some sort of, you know, local policing solutions, equipping the community rather than them being a ragtag vigilante group operating with no rules? What about equipping them properly and officially to start with? Let, let, let them at least be able to defend their communities in a much more uh, robust manner. And then, I, I do agree with you that jihadism is not easy to get rid of, and certainly it can all, not all be gotten rid of by kinetic means. However, having secured the people, then let's start doing the minds and the hearts and getting to people and getting them into scenarios that just deplete the number of people who are being sucked up 
into this insurgency and, and extremism vortex. Well, it would help if the Foreign Office and, as you say, the State Department paid some attention to this. I noticed that President Trump did mention it publicly. In fact, his administration was mm. pretty good on the defense of religious freedom around the world, but because Absolutely. you're not allowed to say anything nice about the Trump administration, that's all <laughs> been swept under the carpet. But Trump did, in fact, specifically mention this question of the, the murderous um, herders. I'm yes. pretty appalled that years after members of the House of Lords have been setting out in detail in Hansard the extent of the slaughter and the motivations behind the slaughter. The British government doesn't have a proper policy. There is a, a big gap there, and I'm hoping that we can actually work towards closing that gap through the work of the Nigerian diaspora, the work of um, various other parties, including people listening to your podcast. To close that gap, you're right, the Trump administration did speak very vocally about it. And in the in the last year of that administration, they actually designated Nigeria as a country of particular concern, which was immensely helpful in shining a spotlight on what was going on. But of course, Messrs. Biden and Blinken came in and actually reversed that designation. So it's thrown us right back at where we were prior. But, but just keeping our feet firmly in the UK for now, my appeal to the decision makers in government, to the policy makers in Whitehall, is that it's so important that we see this for what it is. We don't want to be in a situation where we wake up later and we suddenly start referring to this as a mistake. The, the warning bells have been on, like you rightly said, it's been repeated by the likes of Baroness Parks, Lord Alton, and several others. It's so vital that we wake up and do something about this now. Ayo Adedoyen, thank you very much. Thank you.